Welcome to Unboxing Fulfillment, the modern B2C fulfillment podcast. I'm your host, Chad Rzeka. Our guest today is Dr. Rod Franklin, Professor of Logistics Practice at Kunan University in Hamburg, Germany. Rod spent many years as a supply chain practitioner in the U.S. before moving to Germany and into academia. In addition to teaching, Rod conducts research on topics ranging from supply chain digitalization to urban logistics. And today we're going to just change it up a bit for our mostly U.S. audience. With Rod's help, we're going to look at how brands handle e-commerce fulfillment operations in Europe, and we'll talk about what European practices could be coming to America before long. Rod, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Chad. It's a pleasure to be here and to talk to your audience. We were just chatting before we went on the air about how relevant this really is. Would you mind just for the audience, just giving a couple minute introduction or synopsis into your background and how you got here today? Sure. I'm an engineer by training and academics, and I've come through a number of different operational roles, running manufacturing operations in the oil and gas industry for several years. And then I got into the logistics industry, coming to work for USCO Logistics and worked in their engineering and product development organization for several years. And in 2010, I went back into an area that I had not gone into after I had graduated from university, and that is back into academia. And I've been there ever since, teaching the students in Hamburg at the CUNA Logistics University. And it's been an enjoyable period of time for me, young people interested in our industry, which you don't see a lot of, unfortunately, and I think that's rather tragic. And I think we see the results of that when the pandemic hit with people being so surprised how reliant they are on their supply chains. A pretty remarkable background through different channels that you were raised and brought up and then eventually going into, as you just mentioned, academia. What was the motivation of moving from the field into academia into Germany, no less? I mean, I enjoy Europe. So I was in Europe at the time the request was made for me to take a look at academia. And I had made a statement early on with Kina Nagel that at some point in my career, I wanted to go back into academia to transfer back to young people the experience of practice. We see a lot in academia of theory, and not a lot of people, fortunately, have had the opportunity to work in the industry that they are teaching about. And I thought that that was a problem, and I felt that I could give back to the young people who might be interested in a career in supply chain, the knowledge that I had gained, and hopefully that's actually what has happened. Yeah. Speaking of problems, it's a good segue probably into labor. So in a fulfillment environment, how do you kind of characterize those challenges being different as it relates to, say, if I had a operation in New Jersey and was challenged, but commute times, right? A lot We get a lot of from outside the city in which we actually have a facility. In Europe, what would that fulfillment challenge look like? 
you are challenged with the same issues of finding labor, first of all, that wants to work in a warehousing operation. This is something that individuals today are not inclined to do. So getting good labor. And secondly, the challenge has to do with ensuring that you are really following the Works Council rules because variations in those rules will create labor strife for you. The big challenge is not the labor strife because you happen to step over a rule or something. It is just finding labor today, which is very similar to the United States, where you're finding it harder and harder to get people who will work traditional blue-collar jobs. What do companies do in terms of strategies to help find and identify that labor to want to work in a fulfillment environment or a warehouse environment? Are they doing any recruitment that is different than, say, the U.S.? Or how do you advertise differently? Do you source differently? I don't think that the advertising is any different. You can look in the German newspapers and online, and you'll find lots and lots of open positions, if you will, in the warehousing sector. The big thing that is probably different in the United States is the offers. Let's call it the perks that a labor environment has at a warehouse that can entice people. So if a warehouse is close to public transport, that's a very nice thing. If a warehouse has its own cafeteria, that's again a very nice thing. If a warehouse has training programs that are clearly articulated, that's something people appreciate because they can see that they can move up a career ladder by working at this warehouse or for this employer. So these are the things that companies are using to try and entice workers. Companies are also using technology to both eliminate certain needs for workers so you don't have to do the drudgery type work and they are promoting that to the workers that they're seeking. But they're also taking a look at the shortages. And just because it's so hard to find workers that the price of getting a laborer now is quite high and putting a robot in or automating some of the more drudgery type work is actually something that has a payback that is being examined tightly right now, at least in most high volume B2C retail operations. So scarcity is the same. It sounds like the cost, you don't have a whole bunch of cost mitigations. If anything, you're having to do a lot of extra benefits, as you mentioned, cafeterias, maybe temperature controlled facilities, location or proximity to the labor pool. But the technology has an assumption that it brings the cost of labor down. Is that always the case or is that dependent on the type of technology? If it's like a robotics as a service versus some big capital outlays, are you doing a lot of big technology capex types of investments across Europe? Do you see or is it more renting the robots? It's a little bit of both. I would say that the vast majority are lower end robotic services. But when new warehouses are being built, and particularly in the B2C environment, 
you're seeing a lot of automated storage and retrieval systems of various ilks. So depending on how big the products are, depending on the volumes, people are putting in some quite significant investments because they're looking at the difficulty of getting people, number one, and the fact that the vast majority of these B2C facilities have such a rapid product turnover that they really need to have some what I would call high volume automation to allow them to meet the demand profiles. Yeah, very similar to my experience as well. I think when it's a new facility and it's a greenfield and you're able to stand it up, if you've got the right customer that's anchored, you can put that right technology for high speed e-commerce growth. However, what I'm also find, at least in my experience, if you're in an existing facility and you're trying to retrofit it, you're having to do it just like you'd mentioned, kind of the low-level robots as a service and maybe not high-speed conveyance and high-speed sorters, but incrementally try to address those concerns through the outfitting with bots and robotic arm. Yeah, the retrofitting is just too expensive in most facilities. So you don't see that happening a lot. It's only the big brand new facilities that people are working very hard at the automation side. Yeah. How about on the parcel, Rod? Is it much different? I feel like there is more differences on the parcel piece with fulfillment. So in the US, for an example, we're seeing a lot more use of pickup at store, drop boxes. I think lockers are big in Europe, the DHL lockers. Mm-hmm. But what are you kind of seeing from a parcel perspective on final mile delivery or any changes happening? Well, from a profile perspective, you're probably not going to see much different. You're seeing parcel lockers being used, pick up at store, but you're seeing also a lot of what I would call bicycle last mile delivery, electric bike last mile delivery, some crowdsourcing in the Netherlands. That's a very big thing where there's platforms where individuals can sign up and then packages are given over and they are delivered by those individuals. So we're seeing a lot of experiments. Let's call them experiments because still the majority of what I would call parcel delivery, is done by the big parcel companies, DHLs, the UPSs, the FedExes. And what they are doing is what I call micro warehousing. They bring a container into a city based upon a proximity for unloading and reloading. And then they use electric bikes with parcel lockers on the back to carry parcels to the various entities that they drop off to, and also to pick up then when they've emptied the back deliveries, then they do a route for pickups and they bring that back to the micro warehouse. And in the evening after they've finished their work, that warehouse, that container, if you will, is picked up and brought back to the central distribution center for sortation and redistribution. So we're seeing a lot of that in the cities because it eliminates having the vans in the community and it enables big parcel companies still to do the volumes that they need. 
we tend to get a little bit confused about all of the deliveries that go on. Approximately 70 to 80% of the deliveries into the city are done by the majors. And the other 20% are done by ad hoc or smaller delivery companies. And here in Europe, just like in the United States, there's a lot of interest in what I call marginal last mile delivery mechanisms, robotic on the sidewalk type delivery or other types of mechanisms like that, crowdsourcing, etc. But really, that doesn't address the fundamental fact that 80% of the goods are still coming through a handful of high-volume, large parcel delivery companies. This episode is sponsored by Amware Fulfillment. Amware is a third-party fulfillment company that provides pick, pack, and ship services to established direct-to-consumer brands. With fulfillment centers in every region of the U.S., Amware supports one- to two-day ground delivery to 95% of the country. In short, Amware takes care of everything after the click. Learn more at AmwareFulfillment.com. Is the service levels still on pace with how it used to be before the final mile, you know, electrification of bicycles and lockers? Is the service standards still upheld in these final mile? Absolutely. The big players are pretty sophisticated in this, and we don't see any decay in service. What we do see is a much fewer sets of bands in the communities, which is appreciated by the cities. And this is a big problem here in Europe because most of the cities were not designed for the automobile. They were designed back in the 19th century, and that creates big, big problems to have the larger vans in the communities. That's kind of another good segue. Europe is generally perceived as just being more green conscience society than the U.S. is. I suppose in a lot of these final mile solutions that you're talking about are green lockers or Mm -hmm. electric bicycles, things of that sort. I've seen boats being delivered as part of the final mile, like in certain canal Amsterdam and other places. Do customers in Europe reward shippers or 3PLs, fulfillment companies, for being eco-friendly? Or is it just the product and the price is still rules and it's a nice-to-have? Or do some shippers actually select a 3PL based on them being green? There is a margin that's increasing of shippers who do select 3PLs based upon them being green. And there's no question that many of these initiatives to eliminate CO2 emissions or NOx emissions are more costly. So the shippers are willing to accept that extra cost. But I say that, again, it's a marginal amount of the shippers willing to do that. We still see the issue, just like in the United States, of no one wanting to pay for distribution. And that creates a big disincentive for companies to try and do things that may raise the cost and make them less competitive. Here in Europe, though, unlike perhaps in the United States, The European Commission, with the Green Deal that they have passed at the European level, 
and requiring pushdown into the various countries is causing everyone to have to improve their emissions. So it's not the issue of first mover being damaged by this. It's becoming a regulated requirement that the distribution become greener. So this is probably the only way that I would say most of these companies would have moved as quickly as they have into the more sustainable delivery models. I was going to ask you, are there any of these eco-friendly practices applicable in the U.S.? Do you see anything that's been done in Europe being able to be transferable? But I think the answer probably, if I heard that correctly, is not to say some businesses aren't proactively championing those efforts, but I'm sure they're small. Most are also just coming by by regulation itself, and it's just an outcome of the regulations that are being put into It's something that is logical. If you think about competition, you don't want to be at a disadvantage to your neighbor competitor. And if you raise your cost because you happen to go down an eco-efficient pathway, which requires you to get EVs and things like this, invest capital that creates a cost disadvantage against your competition, you're not going to do it because you'll go out of business. So the regulation puts a equal playing field out there. Now, the consumer may not like it because it raises the price. But at the same time, the consumers here in Europe are willing in general to accept that higher cost if there is a measurable removal, if you will, of congestion and other what I would call social impacts that they don't like. I'm just trying to think of which practices in Europe versus the US might be achievable. And the first one that comes to my mind is like probably packaging. Some of the things like the bicycles in the urban areas, it might make more sense, obviously, for Europe to really lead that effort than, say, some of our large cities in the US. But packaging seems to be one that both countries could certainly share in just equal packaging. Is that a big effort? It's a huge effort. You're seeing a lot of reusable packaging. You're seeing a lot of actually regulation pushing packaging into the background so that, and this gets the marketing people upset, but pushing packaging away from simply trying to be see me, see me, buy me type packaging to more protective packaging and therefore less of it so that the stuff that gets thrown away is smaller volumes. We're also seeing a lot of what I would call boxes, recyclable, reusable boxes being used to pack goods that are going into a particular neighborhood in a more efficient fashion. And things like that. So it's becoming a very, very interesting focus on efficiency and building the smallest amount of waste in the packaging structure. Yeah, makes perfect sense. I guess I want to get your thoughts on one other thing before we wrap up. So as you're thinking about the future of fulfillment, whether it's from Europe or your US perspective, but thinking about Europe... What things do you see coming that are progressive to the industry? What should 
we be thinking about to stay ahead of the curve so we're not behind it? Are there any kind of advancements that you see happening right now that if you're not already participating in, you're behind the curve in the next 18, 24 months from now? Well, I certainly think that there are two trends, two huge trends. One is the pressure for environmental sensitivity, whether or not it's there in the U.S., it will be coming simply because the pressures are going around the world on that. But the other is the impact of digitalization and artificial intelligence. This is something that is building out the capabilities of automation in the warehouse, but it's also something that's allowing companies to better plan inventory, to better locate where they should distribute the inventory. We do quite a bit of work at Logistics University in helping companies optimize inventory placement in the B2C world. Should it be in store X or store Y? Should it be forward deployed or back at the central distribution center? And we do that by looking at what the buying patterns are for the type of goods that are being sold. And all of this type of analytical work is being driven by the ability now to really look at the data that sits there in most companies or most distribution companies' files. And I would think that those are areas that need to be exploited by B2C fulfillment people because this is really where the money can come back and be invested if there's regulation or whatever by just more efficiency in the processes. In your mind, what does artificial intelligence look like as it relates to digitalization? Is it in the form to you of some bot, I'm just using an example, and extrapolating the data from that machine or hardware, or is it software in general? A lot of times I think Listeners hear a lot about AI, it's coming, it's going to have this profound effect on all of our lives. But how do you think about artificial intelligence? In what form does it look like within fulfillment? Well, it's certainly software, but because it's the control systems in the robotics that you have, it's the control systems in the automation that you have. Those are becoming much, much more sophisticated than they were 10 years ago and able to handle a much greater diversity of product that you have. But it's also something that can help your analysts. And it's something that looking at data, because there's the ability to use AI to actually examine data in a set fashion and look for patterns in that data, because that's really what AI is. It's a pattern recognition system, the way that it is developed today. And patterns exist in zeros and ones, whether they're looking at something through an optical system that's transmitting light into zeros and ones, or they're looking at the data that you have had in your database. It's all zeros and ones to them. That's right. Okay. I appreciate that. I appreciate the time as well, Rod, especially being in Germany today. Where can people go to find just more about yourself or about the university? Well, the university has a website, which is www.the-klu.org. 
And that website, I have my faculty profile there as well as all of the faculty members, but the university's diversity of class offerings, etc. is also posted there. And the CUNY Logistics University, we're relatively unique. We are a small private university and we focus on logistics and supply chain, whether it's logistics and supply chain for the B2C market or the B2B market. We look at all aspects of it and that's our reason for existing. Well, it's my reason for existing as well. So great time with you today, Rod. I really do thank you. And Thanks to all of our listeners for joining in on this podcast today. This concludes our podcast episode of Unboxing Fulfillment. Stay safe, everyone. Thank you, Chad. Thank you, listeners. Listeners.